good to see you all here, family, uh, Woven Covenant Church. Um, I'd like to pause to take a few deep breaths this Sunday morning. Um, as I was listening to your hearts and just talking uh, in the proverbial church, narthex is, uh, you know, the intersection where the world comes into the church, the church goes out into the world, and somewhere in the Somewhere in the interchange, life happens, hearts break down, concerns are raised, people might shed a tear or two, and it's in that place where I hear a lot of your hearts, I hear about health concerns, family needs, care for others and your own needs, and I want you to close your eyes at this moment, take a really deep breath because it helps. And at this time, if you want to, with your palms upraised, say, Lord, I surrender. I surrender to you. Have your way in me, good and bad. I offer myself to you. And it is in Jesus' name I pray now. Amen. Amen. This season, we've been trying to read through the entire New Testament leading up to Easter Sunday. And we're about halfway through. Um, if you have your uh, community Bible experience, the books of the Bible, and you see where we're supposed to be reading, yes, we are about halfway through, reading through the entire New Testament. And here's the cool part. I've been inviting our congregation to text during service. You can text or you can text throughout the week. If you have questions about what I am talking about, about this text, about the stuff that we're uh, reading, um, you can text the number 832-263-3307. It's on the bottom of your bulletin. And this number is our church number, and the text messages will go to our email account. And um, if you text it during the sermon, um, we usually have time for Q&A at the end. I don't think we'll have time for Q&A today, but nonetheless, your questions will be answered um, eventually. So you can text those questions in, but before we go any further... Um, Frank, could you pull up that, that painting, that painting by Caravaggio, and I'll tell you a story. I was about 18 years old, 18 years old, when I first saw this painting as a fresh, young art student uh, in my freshman year of college, learning how to paint myself. I found this, and I was fixated on it, this painting by Caravaggio Whoa, it's kind of stretched out. Um, it's supposed to be a, it's supposed to be a, a vertical um, uh, uh, composition, but it's actually kind of stretched out. But what you see there, I was struck by the colors and the tones. I was struck by the contrast of light and dark. And, of course, you have this man lying on the floor with his hands raised up. Looks like he's at a praise concert or was slain in the spirit or something. Um, and I was drawn to that, being a Christian, um, this is a painting of the conversion of St. Paul. The conversion of St. Paul on the road to Damascus. He was somebody that persecuted Christians. He didn't follow the way. He was certainly not a follower of Jesus until he was struck off his horse, a light from heaven, and um, that was the beginning of the rest of his life. The conversion of St. Paul. 
And he wrote a lot. We've read a lot of his stuff. I cannot pass this section on Paul without talking about Romans and Galatians. And that's what I want to talk about today. It's a very important, very important theme. There are two halves to this theme. And if you look in your notes in the bulletin, the first is law and the second is grace. And so today I'm going to talk about law and grace, two halves a big piece of Paul's thought and what I simply cannot pass up on. Some people see law and grace as opposite, mutually exclusive. I see law and grace as two sides of the same coin. It's the same coin, but two sides. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Um, Romans, Galatians, some of the books that some of you have read recently about these two ideas of law and grace. And so, before we talk about law, I want to preface it with a little bit of history, because lots of times when we talk about law, we just understand it cerebrally, we understand it in terms of just this kind of mental exercise of, of um, all the rules and things we have to do, but there's a lot behind it, there's a lot of cultural context, and this is where I just want to teach a little bit of that cultural context. And if we can start off with, this, with that map, the first map, the United Kingdom of Israel, this is going back, um, oh, uh, uh, many hundreds of years before Jesus showed up. And what you have here is a picture of Israel, the nation of Israel, during its high period, the golden age, the golden era of, Is- golden era of Israel under Kings David and also Solomon. And this was, this was their Camelot. He was their King Arthur. This was the golden period. It was a wonderful time of hope and prosperity. It was a wonderful time of um, power and sovereignty. Um, They were Jews living in their kingdom, their own kingdom. But Judaism looked very different at that time. And something happened after that, if you can show now the next map, which, which, which is Babylon. On the door of Israel comes knocking this monster nation called Babylon. Babylon will come in and will say, let me in, let me in, three little pigs, let me in, let me in. Um, And what would happen is they would resist, they would fight, they would say, God is for us. If God is for us, then who can be against us? And believing as they did that they were God's people, they believed that they were God's chosen, not only that Israel, um, Israel's God was the God above all gods. At that time, all of these surrounding areas Um, forgive me, I should have gotten my laser pointer, I forgot to set that up, but all of the surrounding areas around uh, Israel, this is Israel over here, they all had their own gods. Egypt had numerous gods. Um, Babylon had its own gods. The Medes, the Persians, Sumerians, so on and so forth, they all had their gods. But the Israeli, the Jewish belief was that their God was the highest. In fact, so much that he didn't even have a name. They couldn't name him. They wouldn't say his name. He was recognized as the highest God. And in fact, they, they, saw, they, they believed that he lived in Jerusalem in their temple. God dwelt among them, lived. His house was set up in Jerusalem. They believe this even to the extent where um, Jewish mystics believe that where the temple and Jerusalem was located was actually the original site of the Garden of Eden. So that's how much they saw themselves as centrally, you know, servants of the Most High God. How was it then 
that if they worship the most powerful God in all of the known world, the most powerful God in all of the known world, and he lived with them, how was it then that Babylon was able to break down the door, kicking it in, and was able to invade the house and was able to literally um, overtake the entire nation? What was happening at this point was their first faith crisis. Judaism as a religion was undergoing an evolution. Now, for, for those of you who maybe you might resonate with this experience, you say, when I first became a Christian, everything was great, everything was perfect, uh, the sky was the limit, I was experiencing wonderful things, everything was going right until something happened. What happened? Suffering. And once suffering came into the picture, you began asking the question, how is it possible, how is it possible that I serve the Most High God and yet can go through all of these sufferings? And what happened was that the faith of the person undergoing this difficulty has to mature. It has to press through. It has to break through to the next stage because faith does not necessitate everything going well and perfect. Faith is faith even when things do not go right. Faith is faith when things are going wrong and when suffering comes about. And that's exactly what was happening with Israel. As they beheld their kingdom, as they beheld uh, God's presence, in a sense, removed almost, they had to question, A, do we hold on to God? Do we hold on to our God who we've been worshiping? Or B, does he even exist? And I don't know how many of you have ever gotten to that place. I have. Where you've said, I don't understand what I'm going through. Is there even a God? And it's an important step and it's an important question. Doubt's an, doubt is an important part of maturation and the evolution of our faith. And what had happened for them was they held on, but their faith had to begin to evolve. This was the first crisis for the Israelites, the first crisis. And the next picture, and I've shown you these before, and I'll show it to you again. After the Babylonians, there was another empire, the Persians. And you can see the empires progressively get bigger and bigger. And as the Persians took over, um, they had a very interesting king. I've said this before, I'll repeat it just one more time. Cyrus the Great was a very interesting dic- uh, ruler. I don't think they considered him a dictator at all. He was an emperor. But as rulers come, he was unique. He stood for religious freedom. He gave them their rights back. While he still owned and possessed the land, he would tell people, he would tell the Jews, you, you are allowed to go back home and observe your own religion. He gave them permission Permission to observe their own religion. Whereas, you know, typically, typically um, people were forced to convert at sword's edge. So Cyrus would say, I'll give you permission, go back home. And they will say, thank you. Thank you, Cyrus. And they go home and as they return to Jerusalem and they see the temple destroyed, uh, a man named Ezra. Ezra is in the Old Testament, one of the minor prophets. He was one of the very small minority of Jews that could read. No one at that time, it, it was, no one could read. It was largely an illiterate society. But somebody named Ezra, rummaging through the ruins 
of Jerusalem and the temple and saying, what happened? You know, looking through all the old documents. And he stumbles upon this jar and he kicks it open and there's a bunch of scrolls inside there. And he takes a scroll out and he opens it and he begins to read, Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. What does that mean? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. The Lord is one. What does this mean? And he continues to read. And he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And as he reads more and more, he says, I have to tell everybody this. And so he gathers all of the returned exiles and the Jews, and he says, listen to this. And he reads the law to all the Israelites. He reads the law. And as he reads the law, tears begin to stream down the face of the people because they get it. Because at that point they say, this is why. This is why we lost everything. Because every rule, every law that we've heard, we've broken it. Now I get it. You see, if you've seen Jews, and you see the black and the white, and you see the long beards and the yarmulkes and the tassels and everything, what you see is a version of Judaism that, all, that, that wasn't always like that. Before this period where Ezra rediscovered the law, really being Jewish wasn't about wearing black and white and, you know, kind of the orthodox observant. It wasn't, it wasn't like that. The Jewish people back then, they were, it was much more about nationalistic identity. It wasn't a religion for them. It was a matter of citizenship. But for Ezra, as he rediscovered the law, Judaism would begin to become a religious practice of law observance. Because what they recognized is we broke the law. That's why we're in this trouble that we're in. And if we keep the law, do you hear that? If we keep the law, we'll be okay again. This is the cultural background and context for everything that we read in Paul, in Romans and Galatians. Observance of the law, keeping the law will make everything right. Keeping the rules will get you in good standing. How many of you in this room were perfect students growing up? You don't need to raise your hand. How many of you never got into trouble? How many of you never broke any rules? I remember for myself, I was I got into a lot of trouble when I was really young, but then when I became a Christian in high school, you know, I, I kind of pretty much kept the rules until I left home, and then I really kind of rebelled. The question that we're asking here is observance of the law, observance of the rules. Does a better person, does, that, does a better person make? Keeping of the rules and keeping of the law, does a better person make? And that is the background question to Romans and Galatians. What we're talking about is this new kind of Judaism that didn't always exist. It's this new kind of Judaism where they would observe the law, where they would observe the rules in order to restore it. It was a restoration project of Israel. Paul's view and Paul's critique, Paul's critique in light of this was it won't work. I was there, I've been there, and I've done that. It won't work. And he has three critiques of this 
of this kind of rule and law keeping in order to bring back their glory. Three critiques of them. I know I didn't include notes in your bulletin, but you can fill this in if you find that it's helpful. The first critique that Paul would have is, which came first, the chicken or the egg? Which came first, the chicken or the egg? In other words, what he's asking is, which came first, ethics or mercy? Which came first, ethics or mercy? In other words, which came first? Was it good rule following? I lived a perfect life. Or I broke the rules and I experienced mercy and therefore I don't want to break the rules again. Which came first? For Paul, what came first was faith. Did law come first or did faith come first? For Paul, faith came first. And we see this in the example of Abraham and he'll talk about Abraham. Abraham didn't have the law, but Abraham believed. And because he had faith, because he had faith, it was credited to him as righteousness. So for Paul, that's the first thing. What came first? Law came first. I'm sorry, faith came first before the law. The second critique that Paul would have is the very law which was designed to bring life actually brought only one thing, knowledge of guilt. Now, it's kind of like, you know, if I told you, don't think about the elephant in the room. Don't think about the elephant in the room. Um, this week, I, I uh, rented Inception, a um, great movie, where the whole idea is about planting an idea in somebody's mind. And that's the thing. If somebody plants in your mind, this is wrong, don't do it. The human propensity has been the very thing that I know I shouldn't do therefore creates a border that inevitably I will cross. What Paul is saying is that law that's supposed to bring life to us actually only brings guilt, awareness of our guilt. So that's his second critique. But the third critique, I think, is the most powerful. And that is, law is not a good motivator. What motivates you to be a different person? What motivates you to change? What motivates us to live a good life? Is it, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that. Or is it something else? And that's my question to you. What motivates you? What motivates you? As if I could do what they do in Inception and plant an idea into your mind and give you within yourself internally the self-motivation. That's the question. What motivates us? Because for Paul, law is not a good motivator. Law is not a good motivator. And so for Paul, he would say there's got to be another way. Rules telling us how we should live doesn't work. And he would propose a different way called grace. And before I talk about grace, I want to fast forward here for a brief history lesson. Very brief. Um, about 1,500 years after. 1,500 years after this whole conversation 
from Paul. If you can pull up that picture of this red-headed monk, there was somebody uh, named Martin Luther in the year 1517. 1517 is an important year. 1517 was the year that Martin Luther um, protested the Catholic Church's abuses. Um, it's also important because if you do your math, 1517 was what? 500 years ago. So this year, this year, 2017 in October, is actually the 500th, 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. And the interesting thing is, the reason I bring up Luther is because he was going to church at this point regularly, and the church itself became so uh, bound by rules. It became so bound by legalism that what he saw resembled Judaism during the time of Paul. And because he saw what looked like a lot of rule-keeping in order to uh, somehow put us in the good graces of God, he would push back with the Protestant Reformation and latch onto one verse in Romans. And this is the verse that I'd like to look at. In Romans chapter 1, it says, The righteous shall live by faith. Romans 1.17 The righteous shall live by faith. And that one verse he would meditate on day and night. And by meditating on that one verse day and night, he would say, wait a second, there's something wrong with the system as it is. We are not saved because we become righteous. We're saved because we're living by faith. And so that launches us into the second half, grace, grace. I'm going to tell you a brief story, and I think this is a good model of grace. There's a story about um, a baseball team, and it's told by Jeffrey Zaslow, who was a, a columnist for Wall Street Journal. So it's a true story. Jeffrey Zaslow, columnist for Wall Street Journal, tells a story about how his father, many, many years ago, coached a team, a baseball team of eight-year-olds. He coached this team of eight-year-olds and had some excellent players, but he also had some players who simply couldn't get the hang of the game. They just couldn't figure out the game. Dad's team didn't win a single game all season. But in the last inning of the last game, this seems to be always the case in baseball. It always comes down to the last game, the last inning, the last out, the last strike. His team was only down by one run, and there was a boy who came to the plate who never hit the ball before. Everybody's like, oh my gosh. Here comes the pitch. And he swings. And this boy connects and hits the ball with two outs. With two outs, he manages to get a single. And he lands on first base. And he's so happy and everybody's excited. And everybody's, everybody's excited because the next batter was their cleanup hitter. He was, the, he was the team slugger. It's their chance to win a game. And of course, as he comes up to bat, the slugger connects the ball, pop fly, and as the first boy who hit the single runs from first base to second base, on the way sees the ball coming towards him before it bounces, he catches it. He catches the ball hit by his own team. It's the final out. The game was over. But quickly, this is what my dad did. My dad said, looked at the bench 
at his deflated team and he said one word, cheer. And all the kids, confused but obedient to their coach, cheered. And the confused boy standing between first and second base smiled, lit up, and beamed. Never occurred to him to this day that he lost the game. All he knows is that something good happened. The parents after the game effusively thanked the coach and said, thank you for doing that. We really, really appreciate that. And this man would look back on affection to his father. And until this day, he says, I'm proud of what my dad did that day. I'm proud of what my coach dad did. Friends, this is a picture of grace. It's a picture of grace. It's when we goof, we drop the ball, we mess up, and yet what we're shown instead is lavish and tremendous love and affection. That's a picture of grace. Grace sometimes comes to us awares when we realize, I messed up, I lost the game. Sometimes grace comes to us completely unawares when we have no idea we lost the game and we'll only realize it 20 years later. I think I made a mistake. For me, that's been the case. I've realized years later about the many mistakes I've made in my youth and the fact that I didn't get kicked off the team was a sign of grace. This, I think, is a beautiful example of grace. Grace has the potential to change a life completely. Grace has the potential to make you a completely different person. Going back to Martin Luther, that picture, if you can pull it up again, Martin Luther. When Martin Luther was a young man, he was a very nervous, skinny, scared, neurotic, anxious, depressed, frightened person. He was constantly, uh, according to the biographies, anxious about something. At one point, lightning struck and hit near him. And he jumped and he said, oh, I'll become a monk. And so based on his fear of lightning, he decided to become a monk. And when Martin Luther became a monk, he, he was constantly paranoid that demons were following him. He was fearful of all these things, of being, of being chased. He was afraid. He was things that go bump in the night. Even into, deep into his theological training as a monk, he still was a very nervous wreck. Until, until he read those words by Paul 1,500 years earlier. The righteous shall live by faith. Reading those words, the righteous shall live by faith and meditating. I know that through CBE we're talking about reading large chunks of Scripture, but especially in this retreat, the past retreat, I've taught about learning to meditate on a small piece of Scripture. Martin Luther's meditation on, those one, on that one phrase, the righteous shall live by faith, a day and a night, meditating on that not only changed his life, it changed the world. It began the beginnings of the it was the beginnings of the Protestant Reformation, and it would change this man to the point where, when he nailed his protest against the Catholic Church on that church on the Wittenberg church door in Germany, five hundred years ago, and he got taken to trial for that in front of the Catholic Church, and they threatened him. They said, "You're making blasphemy against uh, uh, you know in the face of of of, of death." in the face of execution, will you recant these statements? And Martin Luther, 
after a lot of consideration, finally stood before the magistrate and said, Here I stand. I can do no other. Grace changes you. It changes you. I am living proof. I relate so much to Paul. I'm sorry, so much to Luther with the fears and the anxieties and the distresses. But when you realize that you actually have been chosen, when you've been loved, when somebody caught the ball for you and you're in the clear, when you realize that you develop and you discover a new boldness that you never knew you had, Paul became so bold. I'm sorry, I keep saying Paul. Because in many ways, Paul and Martin Luther were very similar. Luther would discover a boldness he never knew he had. Here I stand, I can do no other. And those words would be the life changer for him. You see, let me just briefly talk about why those words meant so much. The righteous shall live by faith. When he first read those words, the righteous shall live, he, he read it in the Latin language. Latin was the common language just like we read the Bible today in English. And as he read those words, the righteous, righteous in Latin is justif justificare, justice, justice. Justificare talks about um, this legal, legal standing. It was a Roman judicial phrase, justification. How many of you have been listening to the um, SCOTUS uh, nomination thing this week um, with Neil Gorsuch? Very interesting Fascinating because what you have is somebody who's used to sitting in the, in the judge's bench now being put in the hot seat as others, others are drilling hard questions. Sitting in a court of law, looking up at the bench, wondering if I'm going to be justified at the end. A verdict, one way or another, guilty or justified. That Latin word, justificare, justi, justi, uh, um, justificare, had a sense of handing down an edict as Martin Luther wondered, am I going to be the righteous one that lives by faith? Am I going to be recognized as righteous? But then he did a little bit more study. And he looked at the word from a different language. In its original language, Greek, there's a different word there. And that different word, dikaiosene, is not so much about righteousness hand down. It's about recognition of an existing state. No rectification is needed. Dikaiosene, that Greek word, is less legal and it's more organic. What it recognized, what he recognized at this point was that righteousness is not an active thing. And this is important. For him, he saw it was passive. Passive. So what we're talking about here is religion. That is not about an active doing. It's more about a passive becoming. Or a receiving. A receiving in order to become. How many of you have ever, ever heard the phrase, you know, uh, doing versus being? There's a lot of doing. There's a lot of doing maybe to prove yourself or maybe to get the next promotion or maybe to make somebody happy, to make mom happy, to make dad happy, to prove to somebody what Luther and Paul before him recognized that the way it works with God is that all of this law-keeping, 
does not necessarily make him more happier. God's recognition of you and love of you is simply something that is passively received. This is the doctrine of grace. I'm going to conclude. I'm going to conclude with one last verse. And this is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Say that one more time. It's one of those things that we kind of have to read twice. For by grace we have been saved through faith, and that not of ourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. I'll just say in conclusion, to understand the doctrine of grace, it has the potential to change your life completely. It has the potential to upend everything. As it did with Martin Luther, as it did with the Apostle Paul. I invite you to close your eyes. Reflect on the moments when we dropped the ball in the past. Maybe even today. Maybe even this past weekend. to also picture that there was one who picked it up for you. There was one who caught the ball. There was one that told the bench to cheer on your behalf. Consider all of those who've invested in you. Consider all of those who've shown you acts of kindness. Consider Christ himself. Christ himself who speaks to you in the quiet, in the stillness, even in the dark. He says, you're okay. You're okay. I got this. I hope that those words of Christ stirring in your soul will heal. It will restore. You're okay. You're all right. I'm not going to let you stay where you've been. But you're okay in my book. I got you. Lord, as we reflect on this time, on this double-sided coin of ethics 
and forgiveness of grace and law as we reflect on the rules and how we know we haven't kept them perfectly and yet at the same time how you have touched our lives whether we've been ethical or not Lord we pray that you would open the words of Paul to us because indeed there is life in there it's difficult stuff but Lord as we read through we pray that you would open these things to us Lord, we thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. This has been a Woven Church podcast. Woven Church is a multi-ethnic missional church that meets in West Houston. We invite you to check us out on Sunday mornings at 10.30 a.m. To find out more, visit us online at www.wovenchurch.org. That's www.wovenchurch.org.